It's the Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Speaks. Hello and welcome to Season 6 of Sonic Speaks. I'm Jack Ward. For those new here, Sonic Speaks is an occasional series I created to talk with the makers and shapers of audio drama. Sometimes I interview people who are working on a new sound project, and sometimes it's a theme. Sometimes, like today's premiere, it's a roundtable. Rarely has it ever been me on the other side of the microphone. But my amigo, Lothar Tuppen, who also wanted to have this discussion, is your host. So without further ado, I welcome you to the premiere episode of Sonic Speaks Season 6, and to the incredibly talented writer, producer, actor, audio auteur, and friend of mine, Lothar Tuppen. Jack Ward is on a mission. After a stellar career as a veteran audio drama creator, he's realized that he's been haunted by something 20 years old. A script that he wrote when he was a wide-eyed, far more innocent rookie playwright. A script that will lead him, and the friends he's convinced to join him, into the Shadowlands, lands, 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 lands. <laughs> Hello, everyone out there. Oh, You're Lord. with the, the Amigos and the Amiga. We've got uh, Jack Ward, Lothar Tuppen, Jeff Billard, and Tanya Malojevich here to talk about the 20th anniversary recreation, re-envisioning, re-resurrection of Jack Ward's right number, Wrong Party. So I want to say hi to everybody. How you doing, Jack? Oh, I'm I'm great. Thanks so much for doing this. What a what a what a joy to be here with all of you and and Lothar for just shepherding this beautiful uh, old script of mine. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And you know, Jack was the the uh, the the Shadowlands narrator and obviously creator and writer. Next up, we have Jeff Billard, who plays Bennett Hadley. How you doing? Oh, fantastic, Lothar. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about such an amazing script. Uh, fantastic. And next we have Tanya. Tanya, how did you like playing Sharon Hadley and how are you doing today? Hey, Lothar. Thank you so much for having me involved as always. And it was an honor playing Sharon. I thought it was uh, a nice challenge to play a double agent (laughs) per se. (laughs) And I had so much fun kind of going from one extreme to the other. And then, um, yeah. And, and I love the character development, obviously love the script and the interplay, the subtleties, uh, between the characters too. So. That was fun. You guys knocked it out of the park. (laughs) Nice. And, you know, for anybody out there who has not already listened to the uh, Right Number Wrong Party drop that is just ahead of this one, please do so now because there will be spoilers. So that gotten out of the way. Um, Jack, uh, do you want to give us a little bit of history of the origin of the story, the the legacy of it and what your inspirations were? And then we'll we'll go from there. Sure. Ah, wow. It's going back because I, I had written two scripts in university, Biff Straker and Philippa Graves, but they never got produced at the time. So um, Andrew Dorfman, who was my buddy going into the Sonic Society, we and before that, we, we had a show called Shadowlands Theater. He originally, I mean, all of it started with 
with this particular script because he came to me and said, look, I'm part of this internet radio station called the DV8 Network. That's capital D, capital V, capital 8, which was kind of cool. And um, I thought, <laughs> wouldn't be fun to do a radio drama? And I thought you'd like to write one and it'd be kind of cool because he knew how much I loved old time radio at the time. And we talked about some of the great stuff through CBC and the whole bit. And I thought, oh, that'd be a really cool idea. So then, um, in typical fashion, without knowing what I was doing, I thought, well, well, let's just do a series of them or something. And he's like, well, that's so cool. And so I started off with right number wrong party. Uh, and I, and I wrote it. And, um, then I, after the words, I wrote this, the Shadowlands seven deadly sins, which was six of them were written. And the seventh one came a lot later, later, uh, which Tanya was in as faith. Uh, <laughs> that was the seventh <laughs> that one. That was fun. And anyway, so, um, but in the meantime, after I wrote it, the Deviate Network folded up and, and went away and they didn't have any place. So that's when we said, well, we should produce it ourselves and, and, and do it because we had a couple of these scripts written. And so the first one we decided to do was write number wrong party. And it was probably 2002 2003 that it was on the sonic society but before that it was on shadowlands theater which was my old show which basically was all old time radio shows because we didn't know if anybody was making new modern shows like we were so they were all old time radio shows and a lot of chatting between um andrew and i and i have a couple of those shows i might end up putting them on the mutual audio network just for fun oh that'd uh, be a blast because uh yeah. it was you know, it's fun to, to just get those recorded and, and I pulled them off the station. So we did them live on the station and then we would put on our new show. So I remember that when right number wrong party was first aired, I actually got like a launch party at the universalist Unitarian church. And we had like little snacks and dinners and people were sitting around tables and we played it over the speakers. Wow. Uh, it wasn't superly clear as, as clear as I'd like on the speakers. Cause you know, they're designed for a microphone that, you know, somebody would do as a <laughs> thing, but still it was so cool. And I had like posters set up and everything. And it was fun because we didn't even have, we actually had to go and use the studio at, uh, one of the community, um, the community, uh, universities, the, the community colleges here. And and so we we had a relationship with them and recorded a number of our original shows there and not at the station because we couldn't trust the sound quality at the station. So we had really good sound quality and we had some great volunteer actors. Um, and I I mean I can't I I can't say enough uh, for them to put up with me at the time. And I'll just do a quick shout out of the people who originally performed it. So Ryan Sadler played Bennett Hadley, and Ryan's been in a bunch of stuff since then, including. Uh, famously, he played Mal in Firefly, um, the Firefly f fan fiction we did. And Jocelyn White played Tanya's part, uh, Sharon Hadley, and uh, did a beautiful job as well at that time. And then Tim Dunn was his beautiful, deep voice. He ended up playing Kitterstein. And then we had a couple of people, Justin Jew, uh, Enrique Farrell, and Amanda Johns, who was uh, sadly the only time we could have Amanda Johns. She, she went uh, legit and professional after that. And uh, Jeff Brown, who ended up playing uh, the, his partner, Parrish, and he did a great job and really loved that part. In fact, if, for years afterwards, Jeff would sort of quote Parrish lines to me anytime, <laughs> just out of nowhere for some reason or another. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And 
I, you know, I always wondered, like, after that went out, I think that was the one that, that sunk me as, as I would always be writing this stuff from then on in. And it was a lot of fun. But again, because I was so new in this directing thing and Andrew was so new in the production thing, I always kind of felt like, oh, if we had a chance to redo it and do it better, that'd be kind of cool. And eventually it was redone a couple more times, even one by Narada Radio, thankfully. It was very nice of Pete Lutz to take it on. Um, and he did some changes to it. But uh, now I kind of feel like this is the definitive version now that, you know, Lothar has gone and done it and really, really took dug his teeth into it. So I guess that's the, the long and short of the history. Well, thank you. Cool. And um, can you talk a little bit about the, the history and maybe the inspiration of shows that dealt with phone calls and the mystery of phone calls? Were, were any of those, uh, those old uh, shows like that inspiration for you? Was this a, a happenstance or more unconscious than conscious? This was a very conscious effort to, to thank uh, Sorry, Wrong Number, which I still consider to be one of my all-time favorite full-time radio dramas of all time. I, uh, I, it's just a beautiful script. And I still have my students in grade 12 listen to it as sort of like the old-time radio script to do. Uh, and so they get a chance to hear what can be done with tele- uh, telephone messages. I, um, mess- it's funny I say messages because that was another show I did a little later on in, in the Deadline series, which heavily relies on the telephone and it's kind of fun to be able to write those in in the script one another so yes this was really very much a nod to suspense agnes moorhead and sorry wrong number for sure nice so question um about the shadowlands project so uh this was sort of done in conjunction with the idea of shadowlands as a as sort of a series yeah, it's funny. I, I use Shadowlands sort of liberally all through that time. So Shadowlands Theater was the name of the players. I would call them the Shadowlands Theater players, who were the people who did the acting. And Shadowlands Theater was the name of the radio show that we do once a week. And the Shadowlands was kind of like this overarching kind of and my first anthology series. Because, you know, I'm a huge Rod Serling fan. So I kind of like wanted to to dip into the Twilight Zone kind of feel for that. The whole idea of, you know, the distance between light and shadow and darkness and moving shadow from the theater and all that, you know, the shadows that are in our minds as we're listening to all this stuff. I always, I just wanted to echo all of that. And that, my first book that I published was a Shadowlands Theater of the Seven Deadly Sins scripts. And so- I, I have a signed copy of that from you. Good, because it's it's a rarity. I don't think you can get it anymore. I'm going to try and uh, republish it uh, shortly. I had it all ready to go, and then I lost everything in my computer. I had six or seven script books all put together, and they were completely lost. That oh, won't joy. happen again. Uh. So, I mean, I have the original scripts and everything, but they were all formatted perfectly to be able to put online. So, I'm going to do that again. <laughs> it took me about a year and a half before I wanted to start looking at it again after losing everything. So, I thought I'm going to finally get this done. So, well, one of the reasons I was asking about Shadowlands is uh, from the scripts that I've read from that book and heard on the on the show. There's very commonly, I mean, at least there seems to be almost like a. a if not a spiritual quality, a metaphysical quality, there's almost some sort of sense of justice, a sense of um, cautionary tales based on some sort of overarching morality. And I thought it was interesting based upon um, 
and this this is a personal bit of, of fun for me when we were working on this in the production and the post-production I was doing the mixing it's coinciding with our season of noir in Sonic Echo and this is very much a noir story, um, which I'll ask you about in, in just a moment. But as we've been talking about, there is almost like this, the only sort of spiritual metaphysical quality within noir is this dark existentialism of, of there is no meaning except for what we put into it. And usually that's our own foils and foibles and flaws and all the things that we don't want that follow us around. So I thought that it was interesting and that even though there isn't really a strong supernatural element or dark element in, in something coming outside, it's, it, it still fits very much in there in that sort of negative space. So my, my next question to you is, uh, were you consciously doing something noir or how much of this was just what naturally came out because of the subject matter and it just sort of f- found its way in there? I don't think I would have analyzed noir. It's funny because I look at the script and I mean, I was listening to it and I was finding little, you know, bits in the script. I'm like, I know I didn't write that on purpose because I didn't know where it was going literally when I first wrote it. And I didn't have it all planned out. I'm much better at that now, but I was just trying to have fun writing. But like the line, like with Kitterstein and Bennett Hadley going, you know, like a marriage give and take. And I went, Oh my God, like that's, that's so just jumping, like foreshadowing what's going to happen. I had no idea when I wrote that it was just in the ether that way. (laughs) but. I know that, um, and I was just saying this to my mother and father, like literally an hour and a half ago when I saw them, because I said, there's, there's something that happens when I'm, I have so many of these ideas, they come out of someplace, but I don't know where they come. But I do know that I, I, somebody identified that Rod Serling had two kinds of protagonists, those who deserved a second chance and those who deserved their comeuppance. And I, I thought that was that was very something that I could totally get behind, and I and I kind of felt that if there's any kind of sort of universal justice, it's kind of like you you reap what you sow, and I think that that's gotcha. what happens with Ben. Uh, you know, he, you know, he's it, it's his it's the, his own undoing. There's no reason to think that Sharon wouldn't have been a wonderful, loving wife if he was a halfway decent human being. Good point. And that uh, yep. that leads to a question that will lead into a, another question um, for Tanya, which is uh, or actually a, a recognition and then a question of when I was listening to it again the other day and I was mentioning to everybody uh, off mic that my wife, Jan, who plays the uh, um, one of the operators and was listening to it with me. And one of the things we were talking about afterwards was as we were talking through the plot uh, going things like, you know, if he had actually he being Ben. Bennett Hadley, if he had actually paid attention to his wife, he would have known something was up. There was all sorts of clues in there that he's being set up. One of the biggest ones at the end is that if he just actually paid attention to what house they were actually supposed to be buying, he would have recognized the address. Mm -hmm. But he's so stuck in his own head and doesn't really care at all. um, He set himself up. He could have avoided this if he actually had just paid attention to his wife. And... I thought that was brilliant. Was that something that you did consciously um, by putting that in there? Or is that just another sort of like one of JF Martel's riffs that makes it more, you know, palpable, but it was unintended. That, that's for me. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Yes. Cause you, you did ask t- Tanya yes, at first it, and, and yeah, so, that one's coming. <laughs> okay. No, that's good. No, the, yeah, that was definitively right. So, um, you know, we've all been in abusive relationships. Uh, well, I, I hope maybe not everybody has, but <laughs> many of us have. 
And and we've also been in that situation where you kind of feel you're just never being heard. And the person may be stopping to listen only to respond. And so I was thinking about how difficult it would be for Sharon constantly trying to make a connection and having somebody who's just so stuck in his own world of wanting to be this hero rookie cop or no longer a rookie hero cop and and just putting everything else in the back seat and how easy she would know that it would be in some cases you know it's almost like she wishes he could find out or would say something because if he did say something that would throw it off enough and she could say yeah i don't need to do this because he does care about me but you know it's 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 kind of like allowing him all the way through to 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 stop being the you know the 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 reason for his own demise gotcha and that leads into my uh question for uh tanya which is tanya how um what were your first thoughts about Sharon? Uh, how did you feel about this sort of like strange twist on the femme fatale, you know, to bring noir back in again, where we do get this femme fatale, but completely justified. And it's not just a projection of male insecurities. Um, what were some of your thoughts about uh, her story arc and where it was going and, and some of the things we just talked about? Um, I thought that she was very justified in turning the, the uh, tables on him. And, you know, almost was relieved like once you know because she didn't want to get her hands dirty she didn't want the ptsd from it but she just wanted him out of her life and she wanted freedom and that was a good way to do it where she just could take that off her conscience she didn't actually murder him herself so um also i think she was it was one of those things where she felt vindicated in the sense that she had been so scared first of all of her own father and gotten so angry at her mother for just staying in the situation letting fear rule rule her and i think she almost wanted to do it like an experiment what will happen how weak is this person really and how much of this fear i'm experiencing is of my own making and you know if i take the power away from him and don't give it to him in the first place how easy is he to fool and ultimately to bring down and she just felt kind of relieved, but also very, very, very jaded. That's a great insight into and her I motivation. Think she, she impressed herself too with her own manipulation tactics and her her coldness. I think she sort of accepted uh, the fact that she was a different person and couldn't go back, even if she wanted to. That's really cool that you say that because there was at one point where I almost got the feeling like Sharon was observing herself doing things yeah. like like she like there's a part of her watching going like but what sort of movie did i just fall into you know sort of thing which which does happen at times and it's it's very interesting when that sort of life-changing thing happens and you portrayed that very well oh thank you i mean i i sort of wanted to bring in the part of complex trauma you know like when you're experiencing something for a long time the lasting effect is either apathy or almost like an out-of-body experience if you're close to that trauma that you've been exposed to, which she was. It hadn't been, there hadn't been time for her to process anything at all. And she was just distancing herself from the whole situation as a defense mechanism, but turned it into a cold wall of ice that would protect her in the future, I think. 
Very nice. Yeah, and that's, you know, really one of the things I loved about all these characters, including, you know, Kitterstein that I played, which is that there seems to be more depth to it, to each character. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, you know, with Kitterstein, it was really fun just being able to do like, you know, okay, I don't have to actually be the the, the, the business person putting the bullet in. I, I can have a little bit more fun playing around with here, um, which made him a, a very strange character. But that ties into Bennett Hadley, where we know that he's a jerk. We know there's problems between him and his wife. We know that Bennett Hadley have some issues there's you know more and more clues about the anger management and things like that but on some level we can also sympathize with him until we get to the end and realize wow we didn't realize he was that bad jeff how did um what what are what were your thoughts of ben what were your thoughts of playing it out uh getting your head around this character and and where it ended up well he was i I really feel and i felt as i was doing the part that he was trying to to make up for what he had done that he was trying to change that that's how i saw it and and um you know he was total just a you know total evil guy who was uh you know assaulting his wife and and you know hadn't i, I don't know if he had done things wrong on the force but certainly things hadn't gone well after his after his uh heroic um, saving of the bank. Uh, but I, I just felt like he was actually trying to, trying to make up for what he had done. And that's, that's how I tried to play him. So I, I wasn't trying to play him as some kind of evil guy who was trying to do this. I was playing him as someone who was more desperate, who, uh, was trying to have some kind of, of, you know, some kind of, of um just to make up for what he had done or to change things and and so that's how that's how I played him I, I felt I tried to play him that way uh and and uh I mean he he got what he deserved uh, he was he was just awful but um I really think he was he was trying to change and 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 uh thought he was going to and but of course, he, he even if he didn't get killed, he never he never would have changed. Yeah, I I have a quick question too about um, Jeff. What you think? I noticed the pattern, and this is similar to Sorry Wrong Number, where I I thought it was a fascinating pattern of uh, Bennett would hang up on whomever he was talking to. He would have the the last word in terms of deciding when the conversation would come to an end, just because. And that is partially because he felt he was under pressure, but partially mm-hmm. it's a control thing. And it just extends to his, his controlling personality that he almost can't, he almost can't control the fact that it is the way it is. It's his personality and anger and everything is, is completely out of his control. And, and the side effect of that, because he knows it subconsciously, is that he tries to control things even more, thinking he's going to have a better handle on himself. Which goes back to, Jeff, what you were saying about having that deep regret about how things were and trying to change them, but being just as much out of control for yourself as you are controlling others around you. Oh, yeah, that's that's a great point. I hadn't quite I hadn't thought of that. But now that you mention it, uh, you know, it, it's so true. And, and, you know, and just the way that he treats everyone, um, you know, so poorly, whether it's you know, his wife or his partner or, or whether he's, he's trying, you know, he's trying to control, um, you know, Kitterstein as well, you know, trying to meet him and, and, 
and uh, all that. So that's the, you know that's a great point, and and I I just felt like throughout, I just felt like if I played him, it's just this bad guy. It, it was going to be kind of one note, but if I played him as somebody who was really at least on a cursory level or, or either lying to himself, you know, and and trying to change. Um, because I'm I'm not sure, and maybe maybe jacking into this, I had the sense throughout the whole thing that he was going to do this to try and stop the murder. Is that was that your intent, Jack? Yeah, yeah, no. I, and yeah, this okay. is the thing. Like, I I think I love hearing you guys say this stuff because I'm sitting there going, "Yeah, this is kind of stuff I had in my head about him as a character." And I, I love noir because it so much good noir has these kinds of contradictions in character, right? So on one right. hand, is is he the person who wants to stop this because he wants all the uh, the adulation? I, I don't know if that's the only case. I think he genuinely wants to stop what's happening. Does he want to be a better husband to Sharon? Yes, but I don't think he really knows how to. I think he sits there and goes, "Okay, well, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not beating her up like I used to. I went to the anger management things. Everything's okay, right?" And so to me. A lot of this, like when you think of abusive relationships, women, especially more women than men, because a lot of this happens from from women perspective, they they will keep going back to the relationship. And I have a friend of mine who's a therapist who's worked with women for a lot, and she'll say, sometimes it takes seven times of being beaten badly and going to the hospital before they finally make the break and 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 finally do it. And they leave them and come back and leave them and come back. And it's because these people, um, for right or for wrong, convince them to come back into the relationship. Now, I'm sure there's some mm-hmm. of them who do it strictly from a control perspective. Uh, there's that aspect for Ben, but I think he genuinely loves his wife, too. He just doesn't know how to love. He doesn't know how to give room for other people in, in his world. No, I was just going to say, I, I was glad to hear you say that, because that was the premise I was working on. and. And it worked um, wonderfully. That, you did it great. I, I could hear it in, in your performance, and I love that. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I, I And I felt like when the times, like Tanya was saying, when he hung up on, especially on Sharon, that um, when I called her, when he, Bennett called her back, I was trying to be as sincere as possible when I said, I love you. Um, yeah. Because I really felt like like you said jack i really felt that he did love her mm-hmm. and and that's again what you say that's that bizarre kind of divide right i mean i felt like he really does love her and then on the other hand he he assaults her mm-hmm. breaks her bones even i i mean we're not just you know i, I don't know i don't want to say that i mean we're yeah. talking about just serious serious um um you know, assault. And, um, and, and I thought that what you did, Jack, and one of the things that I, I, I love about the script was that you just dropped the hints and, and it was, you know, right in the beginning, the feet of clay, right? Mm-hmm. So, so right there, he's, you can tell, you know, he's got some kind of character flaw, um, or some kind of weakness, right? With the feet of clay reference. And then, and then just having um, his partner just drop in, hey, I went to the anger management classes with you as part of the conversation. 
just it just drops these you know these breadcrumbs along the way that okay you know this guy's got issues you know and and of course and then it all comes out in the end that it's like Lothar said it's just how bad he really was right. um like that so so all those little clues as an actor were all little you know guideposts along the way that weren't really telling the actor how he or she should make a choice but it was offering up just enough information to say Okay, this is one choice that I could make on this and 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 so I think the beauty in the writing is that you left a place for the actor to interpret and then make a choice, you know, based on the given circumstances. And I I uh, I thank you for that. No, thank you. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Well, that's some really great points and I, I, I completely agree with everything that Jeff just said. Uh, something that was coming up as you guys were all talking about this is the idea that, you know, those of us that have been in um, different types of abusive relationships, uh, you know, nobody there's you know, some standard thing that everybody, you know, says even in script writing courses, like nobody thinks of themselves as the evil bad guy. They, it, they're always the hero of their own story. I think that's mm. even more so when we deal with people like this, because there's a type of solipsism that can easily slide into a type of at least temporary sociopathy where everything is about that person. They're stuck in their own head and their own conception of what they are. We've got, you know, I think when you're talking about like Bennett and saying like, oh, he's going to fix his wife and, and he's going to fix his marriage, probably in his mind, he's seeing that everything is going to be external again. He's going to get the the parade or the or the medal put on him by the mayor or something that'll make him happy. And then by turn, his wife will be proud of him and they'll live happily ever after, never thinking, what am I going to do to change my behavior to fix something? What do I need to own that I'm not owning out of my own self? Um, it's always going to be about him. And that's where we also even like, he really doesn't even question too much the whole thing of like, who, what, who should have been picking up that phone booth? Mm-hmm. How did I get sucked into this? It's more like he's thinking, see, I've got, you know, uh, to sort of even parrot a little bit of what his, uh, his wife, Sharon was saying about fate. You know, he probably believes something like this. I'm finally getting what I deserve. This dropped into my lap because God likes me or, or whatever he's rationalizing in his own head. And he's not even, you know, taking time to really think about it. And everything is just twisted up in the way that he, you know, sort of drags his partner on and like, why don't you just say what's going on? Because he can't. He's stuck in that very solipsistic world of just being in his own head. He's not strong enough to face reality, which means he's also definitely not strong enough to even face up to the fact that I'm actually a really angry, cruel person. And I need to own that before I can do anything around it. Yeah, he won't change um, because he'll he'll hear... I need to go to anger management and it's like, okay, so if I tone down on the slapping her around, everything's going to be fine. He right. doesn't recognize mm-hmm. that this is a central flaw in his character because like you said, he's, he, he's living in his own head constantly. He's, and I, I remember M Scott Peck's sort of conversation about what evil is. And to me, that is evil when, when you're so, in, ingrained in your own story that you can't hear what other people's pain is that's that's a truly evil action in that respect so yeah yeah i never felt like i, I always felt like like even though i made the comment earlier that he really loves his wife and i think he did yep uh, i always felt that that he just pretty much used everyone mm-hmm. um for what he needed to do for himself so the way that he treats his partner who i think was a great guy and fantastic job by austin beach there mm-hmm. um playing that part um you know his his partner was always trying to support him and and you know let me in let me in let me in and and 
And uh, you know, I, I think that what you said, Jack, is that because he was so wrapped up in himself, he, he was never going to let anyone in, whether it was his partner or his, his wife or, you know, whatever. The way he treats the, you know, the, the waiter, it's just like, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's, he's just, uh, I felt like he, he was just using everyone to get what he needed for himself. Absolutely. And, you know, when I was uh, going through the different takes, a slightly different, I just want to throw this out there before I forget, is it's always fun going through and, and selecting the lines and, and how they're going to work together. And the very last line that Tanya says to Bennett, that Sharon says to Bennett, is goodbye, Ben. And the take I selected put chills up my spine when I was first listening to him because it is so mm-hmm. pointed of like, yeah. Goodbye, Ben. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, she had so much resentment built up. And I think finally the confidence to be manipulative because she's like, oh, I'm manipulated into being afraid because the police don't give a crap about me. Let's see how if I can manipulate Bennett, can I manipulate the rest of the police department and just they, they can look stupid and just leave me alone? Like they know I did something, but. <laughs> they're not going to do anything about it. Yep. It's almost like the building of a supervillain. You know, you can imagine her suddenly deciding, <laughs> yes. I am so good at this. I will never get caught. What is my next target? You know? Exactly. <laughs> so. Like she almost seems like by the end to me, she almost seems like this cold, detached psychopath by the very end, especially when she's like, cr- you know, practicing right before she's, mm-hmm. she starts mm-hmm. crying on the phone. My goal when I did that was I'm going to sound absolutely cold, detached, and like I'm never going back because. That is what I feel like what where she was at. She's mm-hmm. like, wow, I got away with all of this. No one's going to do anything about it. Well, you know what? Eh, it's time they got their comeuppance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What and else can awesome. I do? And that was awesome. To be fair, I'm going to I'm going to give a shout out to Andrew Dorfman. He's the one who directed that it that last like, I mean, he suggested those last lines oh, in cool. that it, not the wording of the last lines, but. The, the idea of having them being practiced before mm. that I phoned uh, oh, that the 911 cool. and I thought, geez, that's brilliant. And I was so yeah. happy to get that suggestion from him because I, I don't know if I would have had the practice lines beforehand. I might have just j- gone right into it and lost a really interesting nuanced choice. So, And that was just br- brilliant the way you did it. I, I sort of actually, um, when I was listening to it, I picked up a different angle on that too as a listener, which was interesting. Where, like you said, the whole foreshadowing theme, when she practices it, initially when you hear it, you think, oh, she's actually getting worried and like the fear is finally setting in and she's (laughs) going to get caught. And then it turns out it's just practice and she's just like, doesn't care. So that's even creepier and foreshadow. So there's so many layers to it that just came out in the mix that Lothar, I think you did an amazing job putting all of our takes together (laughs) to add even more layers to it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with that, <laughs> and um, I have to. Uh, the, the only thing that that I added to to Jack's uh, script because whenever I, I do an ad- adaptation of, of someone's stuff or a production for it, it's not even really me adapt- adapting. I'm just directing it. Is to really not change anything because it's your script. Uh, you wrote the story for a reason. I need to find a way to bring that to life. And the only thing that that I wanted to add was how am I going to tell the story? So I wanted the microphone to always be with Bennett, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. How do I get him there? And then we've got the whole last scene where he's dead. So what do I do with that? And that's where when I was reading the Italian restaurant scene and I'm seeing the carnation, which is clearly her favorite flower. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then, you know, at the end, we know it's the house. So there's all these clues that she's giving him. And so I wanted to do something similar. So the idea of that whole 
opera uh, thing was 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 my suggestion, and Jack said that's great, go with it. Um, and Tanya, you just nailed it. I mean, you you not only mm-hmm. you know scattered it beautifully with your your initial singing and your humming but you hit the perfect note to where when i did the crossfade i didn't have to do any adjustment on the pitch it was just I noticed right that. there yeah. it w- it couldn't have been yeah. an easier crossfade to do and you just sounded great oh. and what you know, a beautiful voice tanya that was wonderful that was fantastic i i didn't think it sounded that great personally like i listened to it i was like oh cringe 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 no but thank you that's <laughs> no, <laughs> and, that was no i picked like, up on that right away tanya and i from previous conversations i know that she can sing and i've heard her sing on some productions as well but you got to think this is how cool of a cast we have when i can just like oh after you've already sent in your lines by the way can you sing some opera for me no no pressure <laughs> please can you just do this you know this is one phrase please yeah <laughs> I, well we have to throw in on top of that as a little aside though you did have a couple of roles there i i got at the very beginning <laughs> the guy's like hey where are you walking buddy we're that's walking right. oh, that's here the other thing. Yeah. it was great yeah and, and, and then you also like, did watch out or you're gonna get yourself killed that was my little bit of foreshadowing that was, yeah that yeah. was great little improv there i love that yeah. and then also i heard you over the uh the speakers at the bus station or the bus terminal. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah. Northbound train arriving on platform seven. That was Northbound it, yeah. train arriving on platform <laughs> oh, yes. seven. Yeah, that was a nice touch. That <laughs> was, was a nice great. touch. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> and you also you also picked up picked up my part a little bit there, uh, Lothar. Yeah, there, there's some there's some grunting noises in the uh, in the, you know yeah. basically I had to be a stunt double. Jeff really said it's in my writer. I'm not getting in a dumpster. Sorry, I can't smell that way. I'm like garbage. Let me in. And yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> And you drank that water really well. Bill would have been proud. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and the water drinking was me, too, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I didn't pick hey, up on that. Yeah, oh, yeah he, picked up, he picked up on my lack of uh, doing that. Is, is that a so role, voice double? That should be on a <laughs> yeah, resume or something. I'm a voice double for this thing. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to tell John Bell about this, and it'll be a sketch coming up next, right? You're a stunt voice double, right? <laughs> exactly. Speaking of which, he got to play in it as well, John Bell. Yes, yes. And Joshua Price mm-hmm. and uh, Austin Beach, as we've mentioned, Angela Young and Janet Deiter, and everybody did a great job. Um, Angela and Janet, I just like, you know, they, 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 and it's it's hard and it's easy depending on how you look at it to grab a bureaucratic type voice but sometimes it's really hard because it, we want to be nicer we want to be a little bit more and it's like i think they both sounded just like the type of people that have been answering phones for at least a good six to seven hours oh, oh yeah definitely oh, yeah i, I love chance I, I love when jan's like I'm sorry, sir. I can't help you with that. Would you like to speak to my supervisor? Yeah, I love that. I loved it. That was great. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just shut the hell up, you stupid cop. And, she was then, so and good. then Bennett's getting like slowly and slowly more fuming in the background, and and um and Jen's like, uh, which I'm sorry, sir. Which supervisor would you like to speak with? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Can you can you respond, please? Come on, I, I need to get to the next phone call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great. I'm gonna have to stop giving Jan uh, bureaucratic positions. Remember, she had one in vo- uh, in Voter Anonymous too. So uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, 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 is, oh, yes. this is not the fun way you want to be a, a typecast. Yeah. <laughs> Poor thing. I, I at least get to play all the psychopaths. I'm still not sure what's up with that, but hey. <laughs> I had fun playing the artificial intelligence in that. That was that was awesome. <laughs> that was great. Cool. You were so good at that. That was such a fun Ballot show. Ballot assimilated. That's it. <laughs> that was such a fun show. You did it. You did it for oh, Market yeah. Crash too, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I played the, uh, yeah, the, the car, car voice. The car yep. voice. So there you go. That's right. 
Uh, yeah, no. It, uh, does does anyone want to talk about? We haven't talked. I know Austin isn't with us, sadly. Um, scheduling issues, and he may show up at one point. But does anyone want to talk about the relationship between Parrish and Ben? That's one relationship we haven't talked too much about. That is a good relationship. Sure. Yeah, go for it, guys. Oh, I, I just have a really quick comment. Um, I was just going to say that I think that Parrish had just as many sort of subconscious uh, worries and issues on himself and regrets that he felt like he could totally identify with Bennett. And it's almost like, you know, when you have an alcoholic and you have a sponsor that's working with them, somebody that's gone through the same things, maybe uh, Parrish doesn't have as much of a temper, but he's got, he's got his other vices, like, you know, women or what I, I would assume the guy probably does drugs. It wouldn't surprise me. But anyway, um, assumptions aside from what we know about him, he does seem to sort of have this close friendship with Bennett and wants to help him out, like wants not to see him uh, go down the wrong path and avoid some of the mistakes that I think he feels like he's made or he feels like, you know, he's going to make or something. Um, almost like a sponsor working with someone who who's still an alcoholic. You know what I mean? That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the relationship I see there. Nice. Yeah, I, I thought I felt throughout the whole thing that that uh, you know I I doubt that Bennett is capable of having a tr- of being a true friend and and because he's too selfish and um, I felt like Parrish was always the one like the one person in the relationship who was always reaching out you know talk to me talk to me I call you you don't call back you know it and and Bennett's like yeah 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 whatever and. Um, you know, so I, I felt like they had kind of a dis- dysfunctional friendship or or that, um, you know, Parrish cared a lot more about Bennett than Bennett ever cared about him. Um, you know, and uh, so that's that's how I felt about about those. And I, I thought, like I said, I, I thought Austin did an amazing job. Um, yeah, some of his lines were so funny. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was just so yeah. good. So good. You know, and and. um it just when I heard it, um, you know, I think Lothar, you had sent out a couple of its first couple of scenes a while back, and and I think I asked both of you, and I was like Lothar and Jack, who, who was that? It was amazing, <laughs> you know. And I think I asked both of you guys, and 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 um, I don't know Austin, I I've I know of him, um, but he's he just an amazing job. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, very sincere. I was seeing um, the relationship between uh, Bennett and Parrish as being mentor and student because probably Bennett was a little bit more there before they got partnered. And it seemed like that relationship never changed. Like he never allowed Bennett or allowed Parrish to um, really be equal. It's like, I'm always seeing myself as the mentor. I need to, I need to tell you how things are going. I need to always advise Mm -hmm. you. And um, you know, Parish Price started off going, this is great having this guy who really cares about me. And then eventually, like, this is getting really frustrating. But how do I knock my hero down? I, you know, it's like when you grow up and you realize maybe my older brother isn't always looking out for me. Or maybe my dad isn't quite as perfect as I think he is. It's really hard to reconcile around that. So I had that sort of like mm-hmm. some that kind of dynamic going on is, is kind of how I was seeing it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I agree. It's, it's great hearing all of these things because I'm thinking about how um, – all of that is in play, and then there's almost a need from Parrish to be recognized from Bennett too, right? Like mm-hmm. he bring he brings up this woman that he you know slept with the other night, right? And this 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 very 
you know, macho kind of, oh yeah, she was, she was all over, you would have loved it kind of thing. Another great bit of clues to be laid down. That was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. But it, I mean, it's, it's all for him. It's a chance to show a little bravado, like how, how he's, he's a guy worth hanging out with. He's a guy worth, because they didn't go out and meet this girl together. And, and, and Sharon knew that they wouldn't be hanging out after work at any time. Yep. But but there mm-hmm. is there is those elements, right? So it's it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's cool. So I've got some questions of what you think cuz I was doing some experimental stuff and so I have a question out there for everybody. Please feel free to email in if you have any opinions this way and but I definitely want to hear it from you guys. Um I was playing around with some stuff and I want to see how much of it is just me noodling about and how much is actually effective. Um one of the things I want to do and this is just the way that, you know, when Bill and I were talking every day about mixing and things. We, we both wanted to make very rich soundscapes. You know, that's, that's the sort of, you know, every day blade of grass school is more of the, uh, the school that I come from. But one of the things I was trying to do was always have the phones be opposite. So Bennett is always center and the phones are on each side. I wanted to f- get a feeling of him being trapped and having that come across um, was one of the things that I was playing with to where, you know, uh, Kitterstein is almost always uh, 50 to 80% in his right ear and uh, Parrish and Sharon are uh, on the left side. But I always wanted him sort of feeling trapped and almost like claustrophobic. I love that. I, I, I really do. I'm going to jump in and say it first. Sorry. <laughs> I love that, too, because you, like you, you had at times Sharon in one ear and um, Parrish in the other ear and it was nice right. to be able, cause you were t- working with two different phones at those times too, right? Yep. So yep. Mm-hmm. it was, it was nice to have, it, like you said, uh, uh, Bennett always in, in the, the focus. And that's what I've been using now. You guys can correct me if I'm not, but like in the past you would say like the camera, you know, is here or something like that. Whereas I'm, I'm going to use the term focus, the focus like of the story from now on when I'm talking about audio drama, because I think that's a key element to try to help a producer understand who should be, you know, where the quote-unquote camera, the the microphone is following. I like the idea of using the term focus. So, Yeah, that's nice. And that ties in the next question, which is uh, the, uh, um, which you guys can then tell me what you think or not think, is the last scene with Sharon. She's slithering all over the soundscape and bouncing from ear to ear and it's not her walking it was me trying to like create like this sort of like manic switch back and forth with little tiny transition sound effects going on as well i was trying to sort of make her seem kind of manic and you know create some additional tension to the wonderful lines oh yeah Uh, um you know and to go back just a second the you know keeping bennett in the middle and the other two on the sides was totally effective uh totally pick it up and that's First time I listened, I listened, I just listened on my phone and I didn't have headphones and I didn't pick it up so much. But then when I, I slapped on some headphones later, you know, it was so evident of, of what, of what was happening there. And it was so effective. And, and, um, on the second point in the end with, uh, with Sharon and with moving uh, the focus, I'll use Jack's term, the focus around. I thought it was totally uh, effective and and that it was just bouncing. It wasn't really bouncing. It was moving, you know, from here to there and and it was different levels. And and I imagine you put it at different percentages. Is that true? Uh, A little bit. Bounce it around. So, yeah, I would definitely bounce it around to different places. Sometimes I do, you know, like a harsh jump cut from like 80% left to 80% right. You know, sometimes like in the same line, things like that. Yeah, there's one really big one in there, and, and it's totally effective. Um, 
Um, as well as, and this might be your next question, but as well as the sound effects you put, I can't, I don't know how to describe the sound effects, the soundscape you put under with the kind of the bangs, not bangs, they're not bangs. I don't know. You can tell me what you think the word is, but I totally amazing. I, there, I just, there, loved was little, it. there were little stings that I built over each other to make the transition. So the scene transitions, and I wanted this to be or, again, organic. So at the end of each scene, you've got some bit of the diegetic sound echoing and right. changing pitch, you know, the burn, 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 you know, right. sort of yeah. thing. Um, or even the first one is just the gate slamming shut at the Italian restaurant going high pitched, lower, lower, lower. And then that, but then I wanted something else in there. So I took some, some stings, um, layered them over each other. And it's sort of this like sweeping mass from left to right. And then like a, a quiet sort of push, um, <laughs> That's there. And those are the two things then I brought back into the last scene with Sharon and put underneath some of her um, dialogue to be punctuation, almost like little Greek chorus sort of punctuations uh, for syncopation. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Yeah, that was really cool. Uh, like, I liked how it all moved around because then you were wondering as the listener if you were, it's almost like when you're standing and, and you're facing different parts of the room. Yes. So really cool. Thank you. Very immersive. Right on. Yeah, I, I love the, um, the the sort of echoing of the voice as as a transition. It was an interesting use of transition. Kind of, it's kind of like he's going down this deep well of this whole thing. You know, he's kind of entered, and it, there's there's for him, there's no way back, right? And so, yeah, it would deep well, deep tunnel, whatever you want to call. But it, it it's it really fit for me to hear those as transitionals. And I thought, oh wow, what a cool way of demonstrating that through sound as a transitional as well, which I loved. So that was awesome. Thank you. I wanted to sort of feel something that would, it, it, I was trying to get a feel that like maybe, you know, the transitions were also trying to reinforce that a lot of this is, he's stuck in his own head. He is just in his own little subjective world, this whole thing. He's not seeing everything objectively. He's not seeing the traffic that is almost about to run him over, you know, to bring back the, the right. overt thing from the beginning. Right. Nice. No, it was great. Very cool. So, I th uh, is there other things we haven't talked about? Um, well, we could talk about Sharon B's music. Absolutely. And, Ooh, and, yeah. and, and, and Chris Moreno's. And Chris Moreno's as well, right? I love that theme. Um, yeah. I mm -hmm. think it is just, I think oh, the, yeah. the, that high-pitched screeching of it just puts it right on the edge of being comfortable or uncomfortable. It's, it's just really well done. Cool. Cool, because I know, um, I don't even know, like, he just came up with that to be my, my Shadowlands theme. And it was before I even started talking. So good. I, I'd known mm. Sharon for almost as long as I known Chris. Chris is like my oldest high, living high school friend. Um, we started playing guitar together and as, as both Lothar and Jeff know. And um, mm -hmm. we, we, we've heard we the music. Wrote, we wrote songs together and stuff like that too. So um, we had, he'd done so much of different stuff and he, he, you know, he uses a keyboard of course, for most of his music. And I said, well, I kind of need, you know, something like this for, for a theme. And, and I didn't ask him for anything else. Like, that's what he came up with. And it's like, bam, okay, that sounds great. Let's sh shoot for that. So it became sort of the, the main theme for all my Shadowlands stuff for that theme when it came out with. And, you know, some people complained because they felt it was like too harsh or something like that. So mm -mm. I ended up, well, when I moved away from Shadowlands, uh, I, I ended up using sh more of Sharon B's stuff. Um, which is interesting too, in its own way. I love Sharon's stuff as well. But oh yeah, I, I always have a I always have a very special spot because that was the first theme music I ever used for any of my shows. So, and going back to your earlier comment about the Twilight Zone, I really think it, it does remind me of the Twilight Zone in a way, uh, where it's that 
you know, off-putting um, music. You know, it's it's just on the aspect of being horror, but it's it's like between supernatural and outright horror. Yep. I'm cool. always of the school myself that, uh, you know, when things are meant to be engaged with, not in a escapist way, but in a, I really want you to think about something and maybe this is going to have some you know, heavy subject matter, even, yeah. even if it's abstract in a, in a supernatural horror sense, the theme music should be a little bit setting you up for it, which is like, you're meant to be uncomfortable. This, if you want something that's not uncomfortable right now, maybe another show is something you should be listening to because you're going to have to engage with this. In this case, you're going to have to deal with domestic abuse and betrayal and murder and, you know, facing some things. So if you can't take the theme music, maybe you should watch a Disney show. Right. <laughs> yeah. Also, Jack, you nailed it as the narrator, and plus the, that um, filter that was added, where it was the pitch shift, and also the phone filter, and, and the fact that it slightly echoed and moved around the soundscape was very immersive and creepy. It's like it's a <laughs> really you. cool setup and a, and a great outro to this to the show too. Oh well, thanks. I I always I hate my voice, but that's just me. And I um and and but I I do like my second take of the Shadowlands intro beyond the first one. I don't know if it's just more experience or whatever, but I kind of feel better with this because I redid it. I didn't. We didn't yeah. use the original, you, did no. we, Lothar? I'm just no, trying I to need, remember. I, need, I needed. Yeah, I needed the raw audio without anything else in there because, uh, yeah, it was about eight or nine layers of stuff that I did on your voice to get it to sound like that. Cool. And so I just so I just needed cool. the raw thing and that's what uh, jeff and i were talking about that um yesterday via text about how much we love audacity because since you can get a lot of you know external plugins for audacity but some of them aren't there so it's like we're always making new things and i just keep detailed notes in these word documents of what are my steps to get certain sounds but um there's so many times someone says what filter did you use and i'm like well first i did x and then i did y and then i did this other thing and i did this <laughs> other thing and then quickly people go yeah that's too much work i don't want to do it that way thank you so we get, we get a lot of unique feel there wasn't one effect and so it's like the next time that i would do something like that if i did it slightly different it would sound less Kind of like, oh, yeah, I've heard that audition filter. We all have, you know, that sort of thing. Right. And, yeah. and that's what that's what Lothar, I, I think, to, is one of the things that's so rich about your soundscapes, like we talked about yesterday. And in, in that is their originality. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to you probably get embarrassed, but I'm going to say this for the hundred millionth time. But the first time I listened to Crimson Tatters, I was just so blown away by the soundscape. I was like, how the hell did Me you too. do that? You know, and, and I don't understand half of what you tell me, but I love it when you tell it to me, you know, because it's, it's just, I try to understand because I'm you not. You and me, brother, the, you and me. I'm not half way. the mixer you guys are, you know, but yeah. it, it's just, it's, it's just, I, I was, you know, how did you do that? And then, you know, I think about it and, and when you send it to me in an email or a text, I can read it and I can go, okay, I see it. Um, cause I'm just not technical, technical, like quite like that. Um, but I love listening to it. I love listening to how you do it. And I love listening to the product. And I mean it when well, the first time I didn't really know you that well. Um, well, the first time I listened to Crimson Tatters and, and, um, I mean, you and I think we talked on the phone with Bill a couple times or, or something, but, or emailed a little bit, but you know, I, I listened to that and I was like, Oh my God, this is like, 
this is, you know, somewhere out in the, you know, stratosphere in terms of what he's doing here. <laughs> Thank you um, so much. I, I know, and I, I mean that in a good way. Like, this is like, oh, you know, everybody else is like, whoa, you know, where did this come from? And, and, um, so I, I would encourage everyone to go listen to Lothar's Crimson Tatter show. Um, just, you'll do, you'll be blown away. I, I just know it. And how many years ago it was? Because, Oh God, that was like you were working 2012 with- to 2015. It took a long time to get those five episodes done because of my day job. But yeah, that started off very early on when I was still uh, getting out of the pendant world and hadn't really quite gone to broken sea yet. And Bill was yeah. very you know enthusiastic and said, yeah, come on over and do this. And it was a good two to three years before all five episodes were done. Yeah, and Tanya's gonna agree with me when it comes to, like 2012 is like stone knives and bearskins with with technology <laughs> comparatively to nowadays, yeah. right? Exactly. So that you oh, can yeah. do that level of work at that time is just it's stunning when you think about what the, what you had to work with, right? So well, and the, the the key, and I think this comes with any artistic thing, and you can see it with you know uh, especially artwork or music, um, visual artwork where the more you enjoy the process and you just like playing, mm-hmm. the more you can get to that level. The person who loves doing detailed backgrounds in their comic illustration, they're not doing it because they're brilliant. They're doing it because they enjoy the process and that joy comes through. If they didn't, they wouldn't do it that way. And um, there's been times where I've just spent a couple hours doodling in audio for nothing that, that's no you know final product, but it gives me some ideas of like, oh, I can do this cool thing and this cool thing. And that's how that intro to uh, Crimson Tatters with the really weird, creepy voices and everything came about. My, by being doing like, this wasn't meant to do this, but let me try it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing it is not in, I, I have the same thing working in theater for my whole career, you know, of of just not being afraid to to fail maybe fail is not the right word but just gonna put i'm gonna put this out there on stage and you know it's either gonna work or it's not gonna work but we're still gonna do it and and uh see what happens and i think it's that willingness just to take it to a level of creativity that's just maybe outside the comfort zone or outside the boundaries or outside wherever it is to come up with something, something that's new and original and fun and, uh, and all that. And I, and I think I just always feel like, you know, you're always willing to go to those places. Well, and, you know, I think that, you know, we've also talked a little bit about how that's been done with acting where we, you know, pull something in. And I think we've all done lines where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, here's my three to five, uh, you know, lines as, as written, you know, and there, and now I want to try something a little crazier. And sometimes that works really well. And so, you know, the actors can do the same thing of playing around with stuff. Um, and Jack with writing, you know, um, we can do the same thing with tenses and you know, different changes of focus and all that stuff. And that sort of level of play and just willing to go into weird places and even go, yeah, okay, um, that was an interesting experiment. No one's ever going to see that. Uh, I don't want <laughs> that to go out there, but still it gets you to where you need to go. And if you enjoy the process of, yeah, I just spent a week working on a story that I'm going to throw in the garbage. Um you better enjoy the process, but sometimes that can lead to something much better later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of the things also that, that Josh does um, when he mixes, which I think is cool and goes along these lines is saves everyone's lines that he's gotten for different projects and uses stock lines sometimes yes. to make the background even more complex. He's talked to me Ooh. about that. I love that idea. I'm going to steal it. That's a great idea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I do too. I mean, it's it's that sound design choice where you're like, how do I make it as believable as possible? Yep. 
this scene and what else can I do? And that's a really good point because sometimes Walla, if you ask for Walla from your cast, for me, mm-hmm. it sounds artificial. Mm-hmm. Sounds um, like Walla. Yeah. And that was yeah. something when I worked at Pendant, that was something that was always standard there of like, you've always got to ask your cast for it. And to me, it always sounded like, why are the main characters out in the audience too, even when they tried? To, uh, it's just something that didn't work for me as a director when I was working for them. And so mm-hmm. I almost rather uh, get Walla from Freesound Project, where it's like really crowd scenes. Or, or yeah. use other lines now that I've got that in my wheelhouse. Thank you, Josh Price. Um, you know, that, that's a great way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think also, um, Lothar, you and Bill, you're, you're mixing styles and things with not being afraid to mess with um, presets. I think this really encouraged Josh and I as well uh, to experiment with that kind of sound design. And I know I've started just messing, changing presets just to see what what the sound is like and how it changes. I used to be worried about like breaking it or whatever. Right. Now I'm just like, whatever, if it breaks, I'll just do it again. Yeah. And <laughs> Try something you know, else. just, uh, yeah, that's one of the things I always do is like, especially because, you know, audacity sometimes has some settings where there is no default that you can go back to. You just have to like, whatever the last entry you put in is what's still there. So making lots of notes of like, this is before I mess everything up, here's my set of uh, defaults so I can put them back again. Um, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. And just that little bit of, of, you know, little bit of bookkeeping up front. And all of a sudden you can display to your heart's content without worrying about breaking anything. Yep. Totally agree. I usually just text Lothar and go, hey, what are the defaults? Because <laughs> Lothar Lothar's my mixing guru. You know, every time I have a key, I, I, I'm sure that he, he goes, oh, geez, there's more things from Jeff, for God's sakes. But, um, you know, but yeah, it's uh, it's amazing because I, I just I, I just. I'm amazed at the way that you mix. And of course I was always amazed at the stuff that Bill did and, and, you know, just, uh, just, just the, just, there's no fear, man. It was just like, I'm doing this. And, and, and I just, I totally respect that. Well, thank you. Before you guys make my head any larger than it already is, I can't get my (laughs) shirts on anymore. Um, I wanted to sort of like go, okay, now it's been 20 years and this has been a story that I think, uh, really, it really had an impact on me, both as a mixer and an actor. And I know a lot of that is because we're doing the deep dive on noir. So that's where my head is right now. But this is really a very special story. I think it's, it's much more than just something that came out of your head, Jack. It's, uh, you know, it, it's art in the sense that it, it lives on its own and it moves. And so my question to everybody is specifically for Jack, where do you feel like it is? Um, where, where do you feel like you are now with the story? What has it done for you over the years? And what is it, you know, where do you, where does it sit in your, in your head and your heart right now? And for uh, Jeff and Tanya, now that we're on the other side of the production, how has this made you think about things, life, the story? What, what would you like to end with as we wrap up our conversation? Jack, why mm-hmm. don't you go first? Wow. Um, so I, I'm the odd man out. Even though this is my story, I'm listening or listening to you guys going, I will never be a Lothar Tuppen producer. I will never be a Jeff Billard uh, production guy who understands how you can play with all these things and put them together in theater. Because, I mean, you may complain that you don't know how to do it as much in audio, but you're so far ahead of me, Jeff, in all that other <laughs> stuff. And then I, I will never be... a. Uh, uh, a Tanya Malevich, who whose acting is incredible, who productioners are amazing, who puts it all together for me. Aww. And 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 here I am, like I am a writer. And a damn first fine writer. 
Well, uh, thank you. But I am a writer first and foremost. I, I was of actually course. throwing that in for Tanya. Tanya is also oh, yeah, a damn Tanya fine writer. Is, as I mean, she writes this stuff <laughs> and she produces this stuff. She does everything well. Um, but my uh-huh. my point is, is that I'm not so good at writing. But thank thank you. <laughs> My- I, I think you're, that's your expertise, Jack. You're a really, really good writer. And also, uh, don't sell yourself short. I love your acting. It's so realistic and sincere. It's great. We all do. Jack's the only one who doesn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate it from, from everybody. Uh, but my, my, my point being is that um, if, if that's the only thing on my tombstone is that, you know, I, I, I wrote stories, that's more than enough for me because... I have these amazing people who have brought these stories to life and I'm so endlessly grateful for, to all of you here around this table, especially some of the most important people in my life who have encouraged me, who've picked me up when I felt down and, and just kept me going. And I, many of these stories, like this might have been the beginning, but I look down these 20 years and I see another 20 years ahead and I'm excited for the next 20 years because of the people around this table and because of your encouragement and because of the the love you put into this this special story of mine. Thank you so much. Thank Aww. you. Rock Thank on. you. Welcome. Tanya, how did uh, how did this production affect you? Are there any feelings, thoughts that you've come away with that, you know, have some resonance with you? Um I I do like how Sharon as a character kind of evolved and the the character development for all of for Parrish, for Bennett, um, you know, everybody in the story was multi-layered. I always enjoy playing character-driven roles. So um the challenge is the best part, I think. And also the fact that all of us have worked together, I could sort of anticipate or hear you guys in my head as I was reading. So that made it <laughs> nice. a lot of fun. <laughs> and um, I, I like the end, like the challenging part of her having to act and becoming more confident in acting uh, t- as a manipulation strategy to get her by. Like I said, uh, trying to get that balance where it wasn't too over the top. It didn't sound too afraid but at the same time just enough to convince whoever listened to the tapes later that it was real so it was just it was fun it was challenging and um like i said uh, the the my one of my favorite roles to play is characters that have a a complex background i guess put it that way nice what about you jeff well let me just say that uh whenever i get an email from jack j ward or a text that says, hey, brother, I you know, want to play this part. I always get excited because it's an honor <laughs> uh, to, be in, to be in Jack's, Jack's uh, scripts. And, Hell yeah. The, and this one especially, uh, when I read it, you know, of course, I just say yes right away. I don't even know what it is. But, yep, sure <laughs> thing, man. And, uh, and then I read it, and I was like, oh, my God. I, I, this one had even more, I think something gravitas to it there was something more there um and um you know maybe it's because it's a you know 20 year experience of of um you know your writing but it was just something and there was something about that character um of bennett that i just thought was so layered and so complex like like tanya said because i feel like maybe and i don't know if this came off um 
I hope that I did the character justice for you, Jack. But absolutely. Uh, oh, thank you. But the um, I, I I'm interested. I wonder if if in the beginning, at least, people felt a little sympathy for him. I I don't know if that's the case, but that's kind of what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know of so that you know maybe maybe that character because he's so complex. Maybe the audience or some part of the audience goes, oh, you know, hey, this guy's, you know, this guy's okay or whatever, you know. And then finally you come to the end and you realize that, no, he is not. And, you know, he's anything but. And so maybe it's a it's a little extra ride for the audience, um, you know, to go through. So uh, it, it leaves an indelible mark on me and, and, you know, especially as someone who's gone through trauma and, and uh, in my own life and stuff to, to you know, um, you know, just left an indelible mark, and I, I'm so grateful to have been a part of this production. So, thank you for having me. Oh, rock thank on. Thank you. Same here. Thank you, Bo. Something that came up for me um, during this whole process was uh, on a few different levels. Uh, on one, again, being so deep into the noir stuff and a lot of the existentialist uh, philosophy that was you know erupting around the same time of, of the noir style. One of the things that's there is the, the and I forget the, the technical term from a writing point of view, but there's the idea that you're supposed to identify with a character that by the end it twists around and you've identified with someone that maybe you wouldn't have wanted to identify. But ah, the, author, the author tricked you into it. Um, mm-hmm. we, we see that a lot with uh, a little bit with Camus, the stranger, but um, specifically Dostoevsky uh, for me, um, the notes from underground was one where the underground man for me when i was reading i'm like ah look at that fool over there ah ha 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 you know i'm glad i'm not him and then by the end you get the big you know punch in the gut that uh we all are him and and you're just you're him as well and um (laughs) i think we get something similar going on with with bennett to where you know most of the time we see a cop he's trying to stop a crime we're supposed to root for him and slowly and slowly that becomes not the case um what really was coming alive to me was especially when Jack, you and I were talking offline or sending texts and emails. And when you were mentioning things about like that line about the marriage, give and take, you know, and how you hadn't intended that to be so consciously um, analogous that was right there or, or or that how powerful that simile was. And these riffs that were R I F T riffs that were happening, which uh, Jack and I are familiar with a a guy, JF Martel, who talks about art and talks about these happy mistakes, these things that you didn't intend Mm -hmm. that suddenly make things more powerful. And I think we all experience that on the acting uh, a little bit with the, uh, you know, the writing that Jack has talked about and definitely with the production as I'm, I'm playing around with things and things that I didn't intend. And it really felt like being part of a process that was different than just something that we were crafting. You know, right. that we were just building and it's just something in our heads and look at the little toy we made. It, it, it felt like, like an animal that I was writing and it could easily go in another direction. And that was very powerful, very humbling and just wonderful to be a part of. It felt like being a part of art emerging, whether anybody else agrees or not. It was a really cool process I, I totally on my part. Agree. I totally oh, agree. And, and the other thing I wanted to say is that, you know, you wrote this 20 years ago. But when I was going through it, and especially when I was listening to it, you could have written this yesterday because, uh, you know, the, the blue wall of silence and, you know, the, the wife saying mm-hmm. they're not going to do anything anyway, you know, of feeling like 
they're not going to help me no matter what I do. And with what's going on today in the world and this, well, I shouldn't say the world, this country, you know, in terms of all along those lines, um, you know, I, I it could have been, it, it, it could have been written yesterday. And it, it, if anything about a great work of art is that it maintains its, its contemporaneness, you know, it, it's why, you know, it's why when you read great, great novels or, you know, it, it's why, you know, it's great Gatsby, right? It's, it's, it's why it's written in the present tense because he's saying it now. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and, and it's, it's in, it's in the literary present. Um, yes. And so this, this story is in the literary present. It, it's, it's here. It's now. It's this minute. It's, you know, it's, it's spousal abuse. It's betrayal. It's the blue wall of silence. It's, it's someone feeling helpless that the, um, governmental agency that is supposed to be protecting her is not going to do that. Um, and so all of those things come up, uh, there. And I think that, so like I keep saying it, but it, you know, it's like you wrote it yesterday. Thanks. Yep. And, uh, yeah, uh, one last thing about, you know, in this, comes through in some of our discussions about you know style versus plot versus character one of the things that i think comes through with 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 style and that's even in just the style of writing or the style of framing a shadowlands play with the opening and the narration and that moralistic thing is its own type of style and some of you know my favorite authors from the 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 literary world uh have a similar sort of idea which is that every bit of narrative art or and i would even say let's say visual art should be a should be like a dream it has its own internal set of of laws, and sometimes that can be more abstract or surreal, sometimes more photorealistic, but it's really its own thing, and we shouldn't you know, be thinking about how does it fit into the real world and all that. And so technological anachronisms like a phone booth, people might, you know, if they listen to this 20 years from now, really need to have that explained to them what a phone booth is. But outside of those little tiny things, it really is its own temporal dream that just floats through the through the space and and when we hear it it, it has that like you just said jeff the, the the literary now you know it's talking now mm -hmm. the same way that shakespeare does or something else and right. um mm -hmm. yeah uh jeff i mean jack uh wove a dream for us and we all got sucked into it and got to participate and play around and um now everybody gets to listen to it nice yeah well said very yeah. cool. And it's going to it's going to live on. It's going to live on forever and and uh, people will listen to it in 50, 60 years and and I think it unfortunately it'll still be present then. Um so you know it's like I just I just watched 2001 a Space Odyssey again yesterday and that's it's like it, that could have been made yesterday. Right. Um you, yep. you know and and with what they were talking about and and you know you know you're talking about the dream that Kubrick is making. You know, it's just, it's amazing. And so great art lives and, and this is going to live. 100%. Right yeah. on. Oh, any, any last little thoughts or um, comments before we sign off? Thank you so much for doing this, everyone. Thank you, Lothar, for, Thank for you. suggesting it because this was your idea. And I think it was great to be able to have this sort of unpacking. Uh, it was it was really my 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 honor to not only come up with this idea and to hear everybody's thoughts, but uh, I also just wanted to say you know thank you Jack for for letting me you know do the production on this, and also the, I wanted to let you know that you know I I'm a slow producer and I take everything really deep, and I've got you know a list of projects that's going to take me through at least three lifetimes I'm not going to have. <laughs> I don't offer to 
mix other people's shows very often, if at all. And this is one where I actually asked for the honor. And yes, you did. Thank, thank you so much for a wonderful script, for giving me the 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 freedom to do it my way. Um, and I'm so glad that that you're happy with the production because that was the end result. If you said change something, I would have I would have just thrown it in the garbage, whatever I was doing, and done it a different way because it's your show. And I'm just so glad that we were on the same page. As another buddy of mine says, we park our cars in the same garage. Um, you know, that's awesome. <laughs> right on. Thanks, brother. No, I was thrilled. The way you did it. And uh, we've had co- offline conversations about this is like, I get such a kick out of somebody else's interpretation of my work. Um, and, and I love when they overlap what I see, but I'm also fascinated when they're different. And so what you took of what I saw, you elevated. And so what you can't ask for anything more than that, right? That's perfect. That's exactly right. He's like, oh my God, he took it there for the production. That was fantastic. So awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and and that really is the goal of audio drama and collaboration is to make take um someone's writing and and put a little bit of everyone's perspective into it, which is why the art comes out, I think, so multi multi-colored i guess is is a good way to put it almost like a quilt everybody adds their their own piece to it and mm-hmm. it, it's uh what keeps our community together is is collaboration like this hell yeah i agree that is the best part of the community i think me too and just the friendships it symbolizes the friendships the collaboration yep 100 percent. and i think that i i agree with you 100 percent. you know and you know, it's it's such a gift, I think, the community of, you know, when I write something and I, you know, even though I know Tanya's really busy and I say, hey, Tanya, you want to do this? Oh, sure. It's, uh, you know, it's always, yeah, oh, sure. And Jack and Lothar and other Josh and other people too, uh, you know, uh, I just, I'm, I'm so grateful for that, um, you know, because when I, I just put those words out there and uh, you guys just take it like like you said you take it to a whole different level and and that's just it's always surprising and fun and and uh, just exhilarating to see what you do with that so thank you awesome well before we break out into a round of kumbaya or or something like that maybe we should uh, let everybody go so they can listen to the next thing on the mutual audio network feed um <laughs> Thanks again, everybody, for for joining us for this retrospective and for listening to us uh, muse and and process this awesome uh, piece that we got to be a part of. And Jack, thank you so much for uh, giving us all of your your history and the background on this. And Jeff and Tanya, thanks so much for joining us and, um, you know, being a part of this production because you guys kicked the butt with this. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having us. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate it. Right on. Okay, well, until the next 20 years pass and we do another one of these. um, (laughs) Adios, amigos. Bye now. Adios. This has been an Electric Vicuna production. Yeah! 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 Yeah!
Thank you for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama. Or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the matinee, and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.